God has a sense of humor. I am certain of it. So I was looking over my Bible study materials today. And I thought, I remember recording more about powerful weapons. I remember this lesson very clearly. But it's just not there. So I'm going to try this again today. It's a little long, but these are the weapons of our warfare. They are not carnal. They are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So we're going to take our time and go through all seven of these powerful weapons that God has given us for this battle that we are in. The first one is the blood of Jesus. This is how we get the devil nervous. This is how we get him off our back. We remind him of the victory that took place at Calvary. There's power in the blood. It's not just a song. Leviticus 17.11 tells us that it is the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. And Exodus 12.13, the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you. You know, it's really cool. The blood protected the children of Israel when they were in Egypt. The blood protects us right where we are today. And there's power in the blood. Luke twenty two twenty says, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. So, we need to remember that. And we need to plead the blood over our family, over our workplace, over our business. When we plead the blood, we remind Christ of the promises that were brought at Calvary. We must have faith in the blood of Jesus whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Romans 3.25 We are justified by his blood. That's Romans 5.9 In whom we have redemption through his blood. Ephesians 1.7 But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Jesus. That's Ephesians 2.13. If you go back a verse, Ephesians 2.12 speaks about being aliens without hope. The blood made the difference. Hebrews 10.19 says, Having therefore boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The blood is what allows us to come before God, to boldly come before him.
Luke 4.18 shows the purpose of the shedding of the blood. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. The shedding of the blood, it's an anointing, it's healing, it's deliverance, recovery, liberty. Because of the blood, we can have salvation and deliverance. First Peter 2.24 Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. And First Peter 1.18 says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, received by traditions from your fathers. Verse 19, But with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish, without spot. If you have never, I encourage you, plead the blood. When you plead the blood, you involve the blessing that the blood stands for. The blood makes it possible for us to be baptized by full immersion in the name of Jesus Christ, to have the infilling of the Holy Ghost and speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance, to have power and dominion over the works of the devil. This blood, it gives us the authority to bind and to loose If you look back in the Old Testament, the old plan, the people went to the priest, and only the priest went into the Holy of Holies. Oh, we should be so grateful for the blood of Jesus because it changed all of that. And today, whenever we get into a difficult situation, when we struggle, when we feel down, we can say, I plead the blood. And when we do that, we remind Satan, because of the blood, he doesn't have any power in our life. God is being reminded of the promises he has made. And whatever the blood covers, it's safe. When we plead the blood, we are saying, Lord, show mercy, help me. Let the power of the blood and all that it represents cover this and take care of it. Your power is greater than mine. Subdue the power of Satan. Let the power of the blood come against this evil that is trying to harm me. Plead the blood. Plead the blood of Jesus. Okay, so there's a story of Martin Luther. It is said that during a serious illness, he saw the evil one enter his room. Big smile, big unrolled scroll in his arms. As the story goes, the fiend threw one end of the scroll on the floor, 
making it unwind all by itself. And as Luther's eyes read this long, fearful record of every one of his sins, one by one, it suddenly flashed into his mind that there was one thing that wasn't written there. And he cried out, one thing you have forgotten. The rest is true. But one thing you have forgotten. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanseth me from all sin. And it is said, as he said these words, the accuser of the brethren and the heavy scroll both disappeared. Talk about power in the blood. Okay, number two is the word of God. The word of God, it's so powerful. It overcomes fear, anxiety, discouragement, hurt. Memorize Hebrews 4.12 if you have not. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word will only benefit your life as much as you use it and as much as you believe it. I'm sure we all know someone who their whole life has heard and read the word, and yet it doesn't seem that they've been affected by it at all. Hebrews 4.2 says that the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. John 15.3 says that we are made clean through the word. And Psalm 119.11 tells us, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The enemy can throw his fiery darts at us, but the word has its own fire, and that fire consumes those fiery darts. Jeremiah 23.29 Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? The devil has no fire to match God's fire, only fiery darts that cause wounds and festering and no sword to match the sword of the Lord. Everything that he has is inferior to what we have. Moving to Matthew 4, Jesus shows us how to fight against the enemy here. In Matthew 4, he was tempted of the devil. He fasted for 40 days, and he only used one weapon in his battle with the devil. That was the word of God. The devil will take the word, he will twist it, he'll make it sound pretty. But notice Jesus never argued. There was no debate. He simply said, it is written. After the third time, Jesus said, get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. What did the devil do after Jesus commanded that? The devil leaveth him. If you hammer the devil with the word, 
He will have to leave. He can't fight the word. It's irrefutable. Forever settled in heaven. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. The third weapon. This is the Spirit of God. Zechariah 4, 6 says, It is not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit. We all have situations and times that feel hopeless. It seems that there's a lack of response to everything we've tried. Look at Ezekiel's boneyard. This is Ezekiel 37. Here the Lord asked Ezekiel. He just had one question. Can these bones live? Ezekiel's looking at these bones that are dusty and dry. They're lifeless. Then the Spirit of God breathed on them. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. This was a miracle that happened right here. Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. Ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and shall put my spirit in you, and ye shall live. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. Do you know that we're commanded, we're called, to prophesy to those dry bones that they would live. We can do that. We really can. The Spirit of the Lord caused flesh to come upon those dry, dusty bones. That same Spirit will help us when we start to feel like it's all over. I speak this to myself as well right now. The Spirit of the Lord was as a rushing mighty wind in Ezekiel's boneyard. It was as a rushing mighty wind in Acts chapter 2 in that upper room. There's power in the Spirit to make alive. There is power in the Spirit to protect. Isaiah fifty nine nineteen says, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. Nahum 1.7 The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof and darkness shall pursue his enemies. Now we're moving on to weapon number four. This is one where you buy one, you get one free. 
<laughs> Prayer and fasting. Jesus said in Luke 18, 1, men ought always to pray and not to faint. And then in chapter 22, verse 40, he said, pray that ye enter not into temptation. So there's the prayer. Prayer is powerful. So when you put prayer and fasting together, you've got some dynamite power there. Prayer without fasting is naked. So says a reverend in Ethiopia, whose name I cannot pronounce. Moving into Mark chapter 9, we read, The disciples didn't have the power to cast an evil, foul spirit out of this child. Jesus did. And later they asked Jesus why he was able to do so, and they were not. Jesus told them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. So prayer with fasting is a source of power against the enemy. This is how we break Satan's hold. This is how we break strongholds. This is also necessary if we want to grow spiritually. Daniel 10 is an awesome example of breaking through the barrier of the enemy's opposition using prayer and fasting. We're in Daniel chapter 10. I'm going to read a couple verses. Verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. Verse 3. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Moving down to verse 10. Behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. Verse 11. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Verse 12. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. Verse 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So Daniel began to pray and to fast, seeking an answer from God. The unseen prince of Persia from Satan's kingdom came to block Daniel from receiving his answer. In turn, the Lord sent Michael, one of his angels, to war against the opposing force, the prince of Persia. This is just one more reminder that God's kingdom is always more powerful 
dann Satan's. So there's this book from Reverend A.D. Urshan. The book is called Prayer, The Supreme Need of the Hour. I'm going to read to you an excerpt from this because it explains the key to revival. And don't we need revival right now? Desperately. He writes, We have been surprised time and again when we have called fasting in our revival meetings when some saints confess they never fasted before, though being Christians for 30 to 40 years. Why is that? Because the wrong teaching of some who pretend to know the grace of God, they are not saved by works, therefore they avoid the works which were ordained before the foundation of the world for us to walk in. Let us beware of turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. True, we are not saved by our works, but we are saved from gluttonous if we are saved at all. Read the book of Acts. You will see the church fasted a good many times. The book continues. If the people of God would unite in days and nights of prayer and fasting, as they did in the first century of the Spirit's dispensation, there would be 10,000 converts today when they had 1,000. Yes, more than 100,000 to their one, if we can discover the secret of prayer and fasting as they knew it. We shall have in our hands the key to the powerhouse. The great dynamo in heaven is turned on by days and nights of prayer and fasting. There is power enough there to convert this world in six months, just as the whole earth is being flooded with electric light Moved by electric power, so too can the whole earth be flooded and moved by the divine light and power if the people of God would unite in days and nights of prayer and fasting. Thousands believe that prayer is the key, but they do not hold on until the Spirit fills them so they can be carried on through days and nights of delightful, heaven-moving intercession. We must get Christians together in days and nights of prayer and fasting. Just a few hundred will demonstrate the power, and then Christians all over the world will respond. The heart is sick with flesh method, and church life is so blasted. How could the people of God be so blind to this plain secret of apostolic power, which resulted in the salvation of thousands during the first few decades of the present dispensation. And we are so blinded, even in our own day, that we resort to everything, however shameful, to carry on the work. I'm going to read to you now from another book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. This is Edward Gibbon writing about the early Christians, He says, The Christian church, from the time of the apostles and their first disciples, has claimed an uninterrupted succession of miraculous gifts, the gift of tongues, of vision, of prophecy, the power of expelling demons, healing the sick, and of raising the dead. When their devout minds were sufficiently prepared by a course of prayer, of fasting, and 
of vigils to receive the extraordinary impulse, delivered in, ex in ecstasy what was inspired, being mere organs of the Holy Spirit, just as a pipe or a flute is of him who blows into it. But the miraculous cure of diseases of the most inveterate or even preternatural kind can no longer occasion any surprise when we recollect that in the days of Irenaeus, about the end of the second century, the resurrection of the dead was very far from being esteemed an uncommon event. The miracle was frequently performed on necessary occasions by great fasting and the joint supplication or prayer of the church. So the power of prayer and fasting in humility can be seen throughout history. I can only imagine the resurrection of the dead being an uncommon event. Jonah, he preached to Nineveh. He said in 40 days it would be overthrown. The Lord told him, to preach this judgment against them because of their great wickedness. But when the king heard this message, he called everyone. He even called their animals to humble themselves in prayer and fasting. And Jonah 3.10 says that God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them. And he did it not. God changed his mind because they were humble. They prayed and they fasted. Prayer and fasting moves God to do things. When he saw their works, he did something. Okay. Next weapon is praise. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13 says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. What are we rejoicing in? We rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk 3.18 says, Yet, in spite of what is happening, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. To rejoice is to praise the Lord, to be happy in him. If the devil can conquer our mouth, if he can conquer our mind, he's already conquered us. We should know he wants to stop us from praising God from rejoicing in the Lord. So if we want to win over the enemy, we need to praise him. We need to praise the Lord out of whatever situation we are in. And a favorite example of that is, of course, Paul and Silas. After they were thrown into prison, had received a terrible, horrible beating. Instead of joining in with the other prisoners who were probably cursing, they did the opposite. And Acts 
tells us that at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. The result of this was an earthquake God sent. Their chains fell off, and they were free. Another example is in the Old Testament, Second Chronicles. Jehoshaphat was surrounded by the enemy. He had weapons he used, prayer, fasting, praise, worship. He used praise because after he prayed and fasted, God spoke to him. Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. And of course, you hear a word like that from the Lord, you worship, you praise, you rejoice. And so the next morning, he appointed singers unto the Lord, that they should praise the beauty of holiness. And they went out before the army to say, Praise the Lord, his mercy endureth forever. They began to sing and praise, and the Lord set ambushments against the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. Praise was that powerful. Number six, the name of Jesus. There's so much power in the name. Truly, it's probably one of the mightiest ones of all these weapons we have. If I have to rank them, I guess. In the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 17, David went against Goliath. Notice, he said, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield. I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, they didn't really know the name of Jesus. Not yet. But they knew that there was power coming before the enemy in the name. Peter and John faced a lame man who desired money. All they could give him was the power of the name. And that was all they needed. Peter said, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Acts chapter 3. The people asked Peter how this was done, and he said, And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong. We have to have faith when we use the name. The name represents all power in heaven and earth. All things are under his feet, including the devil. All power is in his hands. Let's real quick, let me skip over because I didn't plan on doing this, but let me skip over to Ephesians one twenty-two, so we can read that because that's 
so key to this. Ephesians one twenty two, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And then I'm going to bounce this over to Revelation one eighteen, which reads, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Whew, there's deliverance in that name. Joel 2.32 says, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this isn't just a believe and be saved kind of thing. There's a power, there's an action that takes place when we call upon his name for healing and deliverance and salvation. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. I'm going to read to you here a little story from Mary Wallace. She compiled some answers to prayer in a book. One of those stories shows us the power of using the name of Jesus. The story says that a young girl was tending her baby and she heard someone at the front door. She thought it was her neighbor, so she went and she opened the door. But instead, there was a man standing there with a gun who forced his way into the home. He told her to put the baby down and go into the back bedroom with him. She was frightened, but she said suddenly, for the first time in her life, she had this awareness come over her in regards to her identity as a child of God, the authority that she had. She didn't obey him, but instead she looked him in the eye and she said, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. She said his eyes wavered. She did it again. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus Christ. This time, as he nervously looked around, he said, I think I've got the wrong house, lady. Where is the back door to this place? He just left, suddenly. And her only weapon was the name of Jesus. Okay, we're on our last weapon. This is the revelation of the one true God. And James 2.19 is a powerful scripture to show this. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Satan was in heaven. He knew there's only one God. He tried to exalt his throne above God's, but who can possibly compete with the one true God? Any other belief than this lessens our power over demons and devils because they know, whether we realize it or not, we are confused and we don't really understand the power of God. Those spirits, those demons, 
they can enter into the person's mind and there's spirits that come in and they debilitate and they depress and they cause double-mindedness. And we all know a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul had the power because he was convinced of who God was. He could face any demon, any beating, because he had that revelation. He was on the road to Damascus, and when he was struck down by the light, he cried out, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord answered, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Who is Jesus? In John chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ was God robed in flesh. Colossians 2.6 says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk ye in him. And verse 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 11, it reads, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Verse 18 says, I am he that liveth and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. He that lives and was dead. Jesus. Daniel served the one true God. The kingdom he lived in. They worshipped so many gods. Little g gods. Daniel's revelation and the honor he had for God was what delivered him from the lion's den. I mean, even his enemies recognized the power of the revelation of the one true God. King Darius said in Daniel 6, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, steadfast forever and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth. He worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth, who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. And of course, we can't forget the Shema. The children of Israel were protected by God as long as they kept this revelation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. This was so foundational for them that this was one of the first things that their children learned and would recite 
many times a day. It was only when they started serving other gods that their enemies were able to defeat them, to capture them. God doesn't like idolatry. He is a jealous God. We lose our power when we put our belief in wrong things. He has been from the beginning, and he always will be one God. And there is great power in that revelation. Ephesians 4, 5 says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And then 1 John 5, 7 tells us there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. We need to remember these seven mighty weapons. We need to search the scriptures so that we too would have understanding and would rightly discern the word of God. We need to be mighty men and women of valor that we would one day hear him say, Well done, my good and faithful servant.